Well, if you're just joining us, if you're just joining us online or if you've just driven in late, in the beginning of the service, Pastor Albert addressed, uh, gave an address to the events that uh, happened in our nation this week. That's a unified address and statement uh, for our entire church, all three congregations. So if you missed that, uh, you can find that on the sermon video uh, after service, and you can go back and review that. This is a time where churches need to remain united in the gospel, the gospel that is grounded in scripture and the gospel that is centered on Christ. Uh, today we are moving into a new section in 1 Corinthians where Paul transitions from the topic of unity to Christ-like purity. This is actually a heavy portion of the scriptures and we want to just kind of follow along uh, as the Lord leads us. Uh, actually today we are not speaking in abstract but we are speaking in real life principle and we believe that God in his sovereign timing has his purposes for why he delayed this message. In actuality, the decision, the prayerful decision of the pastors to go through 1 Corinthians happened way before COVID-19, actually uh, before somewhere in early 2019, we were praying over what book to preach through uh, next in a certain section. And actually, in the year 2018-2019, uh, we have experienced in our church the, the most church discipline cases that we've experienced in a long time. And by God's grace, God is very gracious to our church. As, as we dealt with issues, and we, we, we had to just deal with them privately, because by God's grace, when you consider Matthew 18, when we went through steps one and two, uh, there was repentance or uh, it was dealt with. Uh, and uh, we are only able to discipline our members, uh, attenders. We have no jurisdiction uh, but to ask them to leave if they're creating a disturbance or if they're dividing or they're uh, grossly in sin or if uh, it's to a certain point we can report to the authorities. But even that, we haven't had to uh, address that too often. But we saw in particular, uh, and it's not just one congregation, an issue with sexual immorality because of the nature of our society and our world. And we saw that creeping in to our church, and we were able, by God's grace, to deal with it. And, and not only to bring about some repentance, but, to, but in, in a few cases to see full restoration. And so 1 Corinthians 5 was at the heart of why uh, I, I believe the pastoral staff felt like our church as it was growing at that time, we were uh, waiting for a new building to unfolding. Our English service on many weekends, we, we didn't have a lot of seating. Uh, and we saw that there were many, many uh, new uh, comers coming in. We realized that we needed to preach on the purity of Jesus' church. I know COVID has completely changed the landscape of, uh, of everything. Uh, but nonetheless, this passage, like I said, it's not an abstract. It was a real need in 2019. Uh, and in early 2020, uh, but now I believe, given the sexual revolution and how it's taken place and how it's impacted a lot of churches, more and more, this is still a need. But God has been very gracious to us um, in the last two years. I've entitled our sermon this morning, Removing Sinners, Restoring Saints. Removing Sinners, Restoring Saints, because the purpose of formal church discipline is redemptive. It is never punitive. Uh, and it is no, no individual you will see has the single power to excommunicate someone. Uh, this is something 
when it's to the highest degree, it requires all of the covenant members of the church to come together for a vote and to agree upon this removal. So you also see accountability. But the purpose of Christ purifying his church by, is by removing the unrepentant sinners with the hope of restoring them as saints. And church discipline is not for the unbeliever. It is for the person who professes to be part of Jesus' body, yet even after loving attempts at confrontation and, and, and restoration, that they choose to remain unrepentant, and they choose to continue in their sin, and by way of the keys of the kingdom that Jesus has given to the church, it is the church's responsibility to, to, to declare this person to the best of our knowledge, not having the fruit of repentance and being an unbeliever. Now, only God knows who is truly saved, but Jesus has given the keys of power to the church to look at a person and say, uh, if you're saying you're a non-Christian, then we understand why you're acting in a certain way. But if you're saying you are a Christian, we cannot affirm it as a church. Otherwise, we lose our witness. Otherwise, it destroys our, our, the purity of the body. Uh, and so this is a serious passage. So we see three redemptive purposes of church discipline this morning. Three purposes, we'll see. Uh, so if you have God's word, please take it and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where we will see these truths. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Point number one is the first redemptive purpose is to produce repentance. Produce repentance. Now, what I want to do is I want to read to you verses 1 to 5, so you'll see the context in full, and then we'll go through it. We're going to spend the most time on verses 1 to 5. For those of you who are faint of heart, this is going to be a long sermon. A long sermon. I mean, not more than an hour and a half. <laughs> not more than 50 minutes, God willing. But this is going to be a long sermon. First Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5 is where we're going to camp down. Then the, the next two passages, the next two uh, points will be shorter because we're going to tackle all of chapter 5 today. But chapter 1 to 5 requires the most explanation. Verses 1 to 5, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. As if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord. Key word, when you're assembled. Corporately. In the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Stop there. So what you see here is Matthew 18, level 3, excommunication, but not with the hope of remaining punitive reasons, but with the hope of restoration, that that person would be saved in the day of the Lord because in the realm of Satan they are ravished and wrecked unto repentance This is a heavy text, and the context is set forth in the opening verses. It tells us what the offense is. It was reported that 
sexual immorality was being tolerated in the church. The, the Greek word used here is pornea. We're familiar with that term of pornography. But pornea in the Greek meant a wide range of sexual immorality. So all forms of sexual immorality from the lust that we struggle with in our minds and our hearts to actual uh, sexual sins to homosexuality to transgenderism, all of that would be considered uh, to bestiality, to uh, all types of, of sin. Okay, And uh, it says here that the sexual immorality among you, a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, what does that mean here? When it says, for a man has his father's wife, here's a man who is having sexual relations. That's what it means when he has his father's wife with his stepmother. If this was his biological mother, it would have said his mother. But so we assume uh, on conservative scholarship, the inference is you have a man who uh, is having sexual relationships with his stepmother. And what we can conclude is that the woman is not part of the church, and this woman is not a believer. If she is a believer, she would have been brought to task here as well. But there's no uh, call for her repentance. There's no call for the church to discipline her or to do anything for her. Uh, it is this man. And this man, you will see later in the text, is that it's not so much that this is happening in the non-Christian world. This man is actually claiming to be a born-again believer and not wanting to repent. And notice that it is not even this man that is at the aim of Paul's confrontation and rebuke. His pen is pointed at the church. The sin is the church is tolerating a sin that is not even being tolerated among the pagans. And so, as sinful as the Greco-Roman world was, apparently during that time, even in secular sinful society, it was not acceptable for a man to be having relations with his stepmother. That that was not tolerated among the pagans. Now, I want to give you some context here. Now, some people might look at this and say, well, is this talking about uh, churches that allow for homosexuality to go about? Is this uh, talking about churches who uh, have adopted the progressive woke movement or that have bought into secular theory or have bought into uh, the LGBTQ plus movement because now these uh, churches are accommodating sinful behavior. I would say that is a different topic, which we will address uh, those topics in specific in our, in our worldview class. Uh, but, this is, but the problem is those sins are actually being tolerated in the world, in the secular society, and they're coming into the church. So it's a different context. We're talking about a, a sin here that's so gross that the secular world is saying that's not okay, but the church is saying it is okay. Right, So that's what we're talking about. And when it says it's actually reported, it's talking about the witness of the church is being destroyed because the secular society is hearing about this. The report got to Paul that he says, I don't even have to be there to, say, to know, to tell you I've heard enough. This is wrong. And when it says it's not even tolerated among the pagans, the, the English Standard Version says pagans. But the original Greek... 
The term used is the same word used for ethnos. That's the root word. It means Gentiles. So in some of your translations, it will say not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Now, the reason why the ESV and other English translations say pagans is because when Paul uses the word Gentiles, he's not talking about ethnicity, but he's talking about the unbeliever. And he's saying that this isn't something that you Corinthians, most of you being Gentiles, you wouldn't have tolerated this in your former life. And so that's very interesting because the majority of the church in Corinth, they were Gentiles by ethnicity, which means they came from that secular society. And so they would say in a world dominated by honor and shame, you Gentiles know very well that you wouldn't have even tolerated this as an unbeliever, but yet now as a believer, you're tolerating the sins of the old life when you ought to be living the new life in Christ. So Paul's saying, even in your former life as a Gentile, as a pagan, the world you came from, you wouldn't have tolerated this in the secular realm. How could you tolerate this in the redemptive realm of Christ? Now, some cultural context helps us understand why they might have tolerated this man's sin. Conservative scholars David Garland and Thomas Schreiner point out, and, the, and both of these scholars are Baptists by way of, Southern Baptists, I believe, both of them, have suggested that this man might have been from the upper class of society. And we know that this would fit with the Corinthian obsession with status and honor. Some commentators say that this man was very wealthy and he was funding a lot of things and endeavors that the Corinthians cared about. And so, so they didn't want to discipline him. So they said, we're just going to let him go because he's wealthy, because he's honorable, and because we want him to be part of the body. And that's a problem. Now, verse 2, Paul's saying in the sense, Corinthians, how can you be so arrogant? Now, there's two views here. Some believe that Paul is saying that how could you guys be so arrogant? You're actually boasting like this. Yes! We have this man. He's sleeping with his stepmom. How awesome. And they're boasting about it. I don't think that's the case, but, but that is mentioned uh, as one view in the commentaries, the conservative commentaries. But I believe in the second view. The second view is Paul's writing backwards. He's saying everything that I've talked about in the first three chapters, that you guys are boastful, you're divisive, you're arrogant, how could you be so boastful as if you're such a gifted church, as such, that you're such a spiritually gifted church and, and, and that you're such an awesome church? How could you be so confident that, that you're such a sound church when in reality you're tolerating this gross sin? You shouldn't be boastful. You ought to be mourning. What does that mean? Classic Lutheran scholar, R.C.H. Linsky describes how the Corinthians should have felt, and Linsky lived when Lutherans were much more conservative. And he says, grief over the devil's success, sorrow for the congregation because it suffers such disgrace, and mourning for the soul of the sinner who has been overwhelmed with sin and guilt. That's how Linsky describes the mourning and grief that they should have felt. They should have felt 
mourning and sadness because the devil had gotten a foothold in their church. And sorrow because the church was suffering disgrace in the public realm that that Jesus' church was seen as as hypocritical and impure and mourning over this one man that he thinks he's saved but he's headed for hell. And Paul then exhorts, and I want to be clear that the word remove here is in the subjunctive. He's exhorting them. Interesting that this is not in the imperative. Now a subjunctive in the Greek is an exhortation that carries imperatival force but why didn't he write it in the imperative but he puts it in the subjunctive I exhort you as the church to exercise the imperative I want to say this because we are in a world where leaders abuse their authority on all sides I'm not even talking about the secular realm you know that already people crave power you see that on the right you see that on the left you see that in the center you see that in corporate America but you see it in churches Spiritual leaders crave power. They abuse their power. I am thankful that we are congregational. I believe in elder-led congregationalism, not elder rule. Elder-led congregationalism is when the pastors lead and make suggestions, but ultimately it is the covenant members of the church that have to affirm some of the major decisions in the church. You see that in Acts chapter 6, when the apostles recommended seven, but the congregation had to affirm the character that these seven would be uh, the prototypical deacons. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul cannot command them, remove him. He doesn't say, he's not the Pope. He doesn't say, I, Paul, with apostolic authority, imperatively command you, get rid of that guy. He exhorts them as an apostle. and says, it is your responsibility as the church to make sure that you remove him corporately, the corporate members of the church. So what happens in Matthew 18 is first you begin with privately confronting an unrepentant believer. Then if he or she remains unrepentant, you bring two or three. How we practice it in our church is typically those two or three people who are related to that person or in relation to that person, like small group members, community group members, people who that person can say, hey, this person actually knows me and cares about me and has observed my life and can come along and say, it is true that I am unrepentant in these areas. And then number three, if that person is still unrepentant, you bring them before the church. And this would include going first to the deacons and the pastors. And if the deacons and pastors can't cause the person to seek repentance, then You go to the business meeting in a special business meeting, and our bylaws have a section detailing how this is to happen. What that means is that no pastor can just remove anybody from the church. I have no power to do that. I cannot abuse my power. I don't like you. I'm going to remove your membership. Can't do that. Right? It it has to go through a process where have we gone through these three steps? Okay, it's so serious. This is causing so much division that we need to bring it to the congregation. Now, here's a sad reality is that a lot of times, by the time it gets to two or three, that person leaves the church. By the time the pastors confront the person, there's no room for excommunication. The person just leaves. And so, so, so what do we do then, right? Uh, the other thing is that here's the scary part. And I hope this doesn't discourage you from becoming a member because when you become a member, you're, all, you're, you're putting yourself under spiritual protection. 
and you're also participating in maintaining the purity of the church is that when you become a member, you sign the covenant and you sign the bylaws, which means you're agreeing to the doctrinal statement, including our views on gender and marriage and things like that. And you're agreeing to our bylaws, which means uh, if we ever have to, and God forbid, if we ever have to publicly discipline you, you technically cannot sue the church for libel or for defamation of character because you've submitted yourself to the bylaws. But by submitting yourself to the bylaws, you're saying, I want the protection of the church. You're saying, if I'm ever that wayward, I care about my salvation so much that I wish that my pastors would discipline me. I wish that my church would discipline me. And so it's rare in a healthy church where you'd ever have to get to that point because usually the members will come along because the Holy Spirit lives in them. Here's the scary part. We have no jurisdiction to discipline attenders or non-members because they, they can sue us. In, in our world, they will sue us. So the best thing we can do is to ask them to gently leave if they're really creating division. But our hope is that they would repent and become members. So that's why membership is serious. Membership is serious because when you're saying I'm part of Jesus' body and the body needs to be pure, not only can you hold and you should hold the pastors accountable, which means the members hold the pastors accountable, but the pastors are accountable only for the souls of the members. So when you sign that covenant, we are responsible for your soul. You're responsible for our souls. If you're just an attender, I'm not saying we don't shepherd you or care about you, but we actually don't have jurisdiction over your soul. And I go to sleep with peace at night if an attender is, you know, I, I don't go spend a lot of time chasing down attenders. But if, if it is told to me that an active member of the church is struggling then I'm held accountable that I have to do everything that I can to discipline that member, to pursue that member, to counsel that member. Because they are part of, they've committed to that local body. And so that's why 1 Corinthians 5 is so central. And this is central to Baptist polity. So some of you will say, hey, Calvary Chapel doesn't have membership. I respect whatever doctrine that they're standing on. They're not Baptist. So there's, there's a difference in different denominations. Presbyterians believe in membership. Most churches have some form of membership, okay? And you can talk to us by coming to our membership class and learning more about membership. But that is what Paul's telling them to do. He's telling the members of the church to exercise their bylaws. Okay, so I'm reading it. And he's telling them, exercise the keys of the kingdom and make sure that the church is pure, okay? And so look at verse 3 now. What he says, he says, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. But he doesn't formally say he's going to remove them, right? When you are assembled, verse 4, right? So not one single person and not just the pastors. He doesn't say Timothy's going to come and remove them. He doesn't just say your pastors remove them. He says when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are, plural, the members of the church, the corporate members in good standing. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Are you interested in understanding this text better? I am. I'm going to take the time to do it. Okay, so you are to deliver this man to Satan. What does that mean? There are two realms. This world is under the prince 
and principalities of this world. So even when you consider what happened in the Capitol or when you, when you see uh, big tech and censorship, all of that, you know, or whether you're the right to the left, you shouldn't be in crisis mode. You should be in Christ because that is in the secular realm. I'm going to talk about this Tuesday in our Sunday school or our Tuesday night class. That's the secular world. Is there some redemptive aspect? Yes, yes, yes. But whatever happens under there is under the, the, the realm of Satan. But where God gives the covenants, starting with Abraham, is given to Israel. That is a redemptive community. The promises given to Israel, the Abrahamic and the Davidic, they are fulfilled in Christ. The church is the covenant community of Christ. And the church is under a different realm. It is under the power of the gospel. It is under the power of the spirit. The law is written on our hearts. And as such, we have the power of redemption. And the keys to church discipline happen under the realm of the church. So the church is to be very distinct and different from the world. Paul's going to say later, he's not saying we don't associate with the world. But he's saying we are not responsible to judge the world. We are responsible to judge our own people who claim to be Christ followers. And if you can understand what is happening there, that's what he's saying. He's basically saying if this person is saying I am not a believer or they're saying I am a believer uh, but I don't want to repent, I don't want to repent, what they are in a sense saying is that I don't want to change, I don't have the spirit, I, I, I want to continue to sleep with my stepmom and I think it's okay. And so then the church has to say, no, you belong in that realm. And so when you excommunicate an unrepentant, keyword unrepentant, not the repentant person, the unrepentant professing believer into the, out into the world, you're basically saying as a corporate membership, you are not a believer. And they are now in Satan's realm. Now the hope is that under in the world, because this person is saying, I don't want membership, I don't want accountability, I don't want rebuke, I don't want my pastors to pursue me, I don't want the church, I don't want my small group, I don't want church. I don't want protection in the covenant realm. Okay, so you're now in the secular world where you're left to the flesh, the sin, sinful flesh. And the flesh will destroy this, this individual. And the hope is this person will come to repentance because they're destroyed in the world, meaning that they, their sin begins to take over and, and they realize, man, I miss the protection of the church. I need Christ. And so then they come back in repentance and they are restored. And so that's what it means that so that, the, the, the purpose here is that so that his spirit, lowercase, meaning his soul, may be saved on the day of the Lord. So what is at stake? What is at stake is the soul of the professing believer who's acting like an unbeliever. That's what's at stake, the purity of the church, the unity of the church. Now, Paul's already determined what needs to be done, and he's saying the church needs to do it. Verse 5 is the sad, sad reality. Okay, so that's the hope of church discipline. So applicationally, church discipline aims to expose sin for the purpose of warning and protecting believers from the destruction of sin 
If you have a false believer, then the hope is that exposing the seriousness of sin would leave uh, would lead to the salvation of that individual. And we see that church discipline is necessary to maintain a good witness to the unbelieving world. And in this sense, Paul was confirming them uh, or confronting them about tolerating sin uh, that was so abominable that even the unbelieving world rejected it. And so that's point number one. Okay, point number one is that the goal of church discipline is the redemptive purpose is to produce repentance. I told you this would be long. I want to give you more application. By God's grace, churches don't always have to go to formal church discipline because when you think of church discipline, you think of the formal. Formal is for really, really uh, serious cases. But where church discipline is happening normally is actually the redemptive work is happening in your groups. In your groups. This is why groups are so essential. So remember that church discipline has various steps, and even if it's step one of Matthew 18, it's still church discipline. So you're in your group, your small group, your community group. Uh, this is more for your small group because community groups are open to non-Christians as well. right? Your, your small group is your closed accountability, uh, and you should be dealing with sin, not just having a boys' or girls' club. Uh, so as someone shares their sin... Their, their small group members are saying, hey, we're going to help you to purge that sin. We're going to keep you accountable. That's church discipline. doesn't need to go to the formal excommunication, right? And typically, that's supposed to help, okay? And that's why we encourage you, even in the midst of uh, being scattered, to continue to meet on Zoom uh, or whatever platform you use to continue to have your groups to practice that type of redemptive discipline of one another, okay? Point number two. The first point is to produce repentance because that's what the church needs to be pure. Point number two is to prevent the spread of sin. Prevent the spread of sin. I don't know why, but nowadays a lot of young people are into baking bread. I just still go to Stater Brothers. I'd much rather have you bake my bread. So if you're into that breaking bread thing, I'd love to try your bread. Uh, but, you know, all these young people, you know, it, it moved from craft coffee to uh, bread. And so please bring the bread. <laughs> um, and so as, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking about making bread and different types of bread. And, and so you'll understand the illustration here, okay? Um, is that bread, you need some type of yeast to make the bread rise unless you're making unleavened flat bread. And so this is the illustration. Notice verse 6. Prevent the spread of sin, right? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven is the yeast that makes, again, the bread rise. And you just need a little bit of it, and it spreads. The point of the illustration is the, is the point of permeation. Is the leaven permeates. It spreads. Uh, and so, verse 6 once again, is the irony of their boasting. How could they be boasting when they're tolerating such a gross sin? And so the point is, because leaven spreads and impacts the whole lump of dough, even if you have bad leaven, just a little bit of it will spoil the entire lump. So every local church must cleanse out key word is not the repentant people but the unrepentant individuals Other, otherwise if you don't deal with the unrepentant sinners 
that sinner, the key word is the sinner, Paul doesn't say remove the sin. He says remove the sinner, that that sinner will cause sin to spread, relationships to be broken, tolerance of sin leads to more sin, and eventually it will ruin the whole lump, right? It will destroy the entire church. And if Jesus died to purify the church, it makes no sense for churches to allow sin to make its way through the members of the body, like a cancer cell being allowed to spread all throughout one's body. So again, if you have cancer, you want to eradicate the cancer because the cancer cells will spread. It's the same illustration of sin in the church. And so with the illustration of leaven, Paul draws on two Old Testament passages that I want you uh, to see, two Old Testament passages, um, or I mean two uh, Old Testament feasts. They're in various passages. It's in Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus 13, we won't go there today. But as a symbolic act, they celebrated the Passover meal with unleavened bread, and they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And of course, they're going to use unleavened bread. And so that's why uh, when you take the Lord's Supper, uh, you take the flat bread. Now, I remember the first time I did the Lord's Supper, I got up and said, we're going to take the cracker. <laughs> and, and one loving pastor mentor uh, came to me and said, Hanley, don't call it a cracker because it's actually bread. It's unleavened bread. It's matzah bread. Uh, and I said, oh, and I, I did the study and I understood why Jewish people eat the unleavened bread, right? Because it's, it's theological and theology is the key to my heart. So I never use the word cracker again. Um, so now when I get up, I say the bread as we take the bread. Uh, because that's what the, it has no leaven in it. Because in the Old Testament, w before they took the Passover meal, they had to go through their house and get rid of all the leaven. And I don't know why they came up with these symbols, but the symbol of leaven uh, symbolized evil. So it's this idea of purge your house of all the evil. Then you take the Passover meal together, which symbolizes, uh, you know, the Passover lamb taking shelter under the blood of the lamb and God's judgment passing over uh, the people in Egypt and then them being delivered because of that. And for us, our Passover lamb is Jesus Christ. And our Feast of Unleavened Bread is because Christ is that Passover meal, symbolically that we are all unleavened, meaning we've been purged of evil positionally, even though we're still being sanctified. So leaven symbolized what was evil and corrupt. And so uh, verse 7 says, cleanse out the old leaven, and he's talking to the entire church, but there's also individual implications here. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are already unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So the cleanse out uh, is, is the imperative. The indicative is that you are already unleavened. And so it's basically saying the reason why you need to cleanse out the evil is because positionally you've already been made holy in Christ. So basically work up to who you are as a church in Christ. If Jesus has already made you unleavened, symbolically meaning if he's already made you pure as a body of Christ, that's why he died for you, then you as a corporate body need to do the work to work out your own salvation, to become that pure body, do the work of church discipline. And this has individual implications as well. We all have the new life in Christ. If you're a believer, we put on 
the, the, the new self in Christ, right? But the old self still lives in us, and we need to deal with sin. Sin must be mortified, as John Owen would write about in the mortification of sin. And so, so the reason is, verse 7, the end, it says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So that's what I mean. Because the sacrifice was made for us to be pure, we must strive to be pure. Okay? So the imperative is there because the indicative. The indicative is you are unleavened. You are really unleavened. The imperative is clean, cleanse out the old leaven. Now, verse 8 says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not literally. We're not Old Testament Jews. We're not literally celebrating the festival of Passover or the festival, uh, the Feast of the Booths. Uh, not with the old leaven, but the level uh, and the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right? So celebrate your salvation. Celebrate your Christ-likeness. Celebrate who you are in Christ as a church. Right? And, and it tells us how to do this. So this leads us to point number three. So, so point number two, uh, point number two was to prevent the spread of sin. So what we see the first two redemptive purposes of church discipline is to produce repentance. The second was to prevent the spread of sin. The third is to purge evil from within the church. To purge evil from within the church. And we see this in verses 9 to 13. Let me first read to you verses 9 to 10. Purge evil. Purge evil. Verse 9. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. So, that's what I meant earlier when I said, don't get disturbed by what you see in the outside world. Paul's, Paul tells us that, that he's, he's not saying that we don't live in the real world, world, but that's what's happening. You have to associate with these things. you you got to be ready uh, at some level for big tech censorship and not get angry about it as long as you still have God's word. It doesn't matter what other people are tweeting and stuff like that. You, you, you need to know what God's word is saying. And we need to be able to dispense that within the church. Uh, the LGBTQ movement, the woke progressive movement, of course that's happening in this world. Romans 1 says that God's going to give the world over to their uh, wicked ways. Now, the gospel is the hope for the world. But that's the world we live in. So, it, so it's weird to me when Christians are fighting each other, <laughs> when we ought to be united in the church. Makes no sense. Uh, the, the, a lot of churches and, and Christians have been co-opted by politics from the right or the left. When we are ought to be under the operative of the kingdom. It's, it, it, it's weird. So look at verse 9. It says, I wrote to you in my letter. What letter is this? Well, this is a letter that's lost. I actually have tried to study in, in, in the last two decades, what is this letter? And um, so if any of you can advise me and help me, like some of you, maybe you're studying, you're watching, and you're a PhD student in New Testament, please help me. I, I, I can't find this letter in any, you know, anything that I've read. Uh, so everything that we've read, this letter is lost. 
So the belief is that Paul wrote three letters to the Corinthians, and we only have two of them, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But apparently Paul wrote a letter to them earlier telling the Corinthians don't associate with sexually immoral people, and they misinterpreted that. And they said, okay, we're not going to go and live in this world, or we're not going to associate to sinners in this world. And he's saying, I'm not, that's not what I meant, because if that's what I meant, then you would have to exit this world. Because you cannot live in this world and not associate with sinful people. Verse 10, the Corinthians misunderstood what was happening, um, right? They misunderstood. So in verse 11, he clarifies, he says, but now... I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Okay, so now he clarifies. He's saying, I'm not talking about don't live in this world. You're going to have unbelieving family members, unbelieving co-workers, unbelieving neighbors. And we ought to love our neighbor for the sake of the gospel. We don't become like the world, but we are not of the world, but we're in the world for the sake of the gospel. But now he's saying, if someone claims to be a born-again believer, but if they are guilty, unrepentant, right? Because we're all guilty of ongoing sin, but we're experiencing ongoing redemption. But the person is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. And notice that it's not the sin. You know how, you know how they say, uh, you know, hate the sin, not the sinner kind of thing? Uh, or, or, or I'm getting it wrong. I didn't write it in my manuscript, so forget that point. But uh, the point is, it, Paul's attacking the sinner, <laughs> So we can't just say, I hate the sin, love the sinner. That's that's what it's saying. No, he's saying the sinner. Look at how he's writing. Look at your Bibles. He's saying the brother, if he person is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. And he doesn't say idolatry or reviling or drunkenness. He says the idolater, the reviler, the drunkard, the swindler, not even to eat with such a one. If they claim to be a believer. Idolatry. This idolatry includes political idolatry from the left or the right. This includes worshiping ideologies of this world, even if it's conservative ideology or liberal ideology. This includes worshiping the comfort of this world and materialism. Sexual immorality is already listed, but revilers, drunkards, swindlers, dishonesty, right? Not to even eat with such a one. So it's very clear. If someone claims to be in Christ, there is a higher standard. And it is up to the covenant community to determine whether or not their members are bearing fruit. The fruit of repentance being the main one that's, that's being put forth here, right? Repentance needs to be happened. Now, why does he say not even eat with such a one? So this is where it's really weird. So I can eat with a non-Christian. Let's just say the non-Christian is a homosexual. And so I want to try to share the gospel so I can eat with this person. But if there's someone who's saying, I'm a Christian, I'm part of the church, and they're unrepentant, then I can't eat with them? Paul, you gotta, you got to clarify, brother. you got to clarify, apostle. What do you mean by that? And so Paul always sends us to be intellectually honest and to read 
all of his letters and to understand uh, Pauline theology. It's not Pauline theology. That's a woman's name. Pauline theology. And if you understand what Paul is saying, he's basically saying in the ancient world, in the ancient world, when you share a meal with someone, it was a sign of fellowship and acceptance. And so this would include the Lord's Supper. So if you're going to take Lord's Supper with someone, they need to be repentant. But at the same time, even the breaking of the bread, because the Lord's Supper was often accompanied with real food as well, if you're going to have a meal with someone, often it was a sign of fellowship and acceptance. So if you're going to eat with a professing believer that is clearly unrepentant, you're basically saying, I accept your lifestyle and you're okay, you're not headed to hell, you're good. And that's dangerous for that person's soul. So it's not even out of pride. It's out of love for that person being deceived into thinking that they can continue to have fellowship with what is pure, the body of Christ, when they're not really part of the body of Christ, which they need to be brought to sorrow so that they can be repentant and brought back in to fellowship. That's what he means. And we see this in Galatians chapter 2, 11 to 14. That's what I mean. Intellectual honesty requires us to read all of Paul's letters to understand what the apostle meant by his consistent pen. In Galatians chapter 2, 11 to 14, Peter, Cephas, Peter needs to repent. When I say Cephas, I think of some type of like lotion. It's weird. So I got to call him Peter. Cephas, good lotion for your body, right? So I, I don't know what a Cephas is. But in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, Peter, he eats with the Gentiles. Why? He has a meal with the Gentiles to signify acceptance. But then some Jews come, sent from James. And he sees these Jews. And so he's ashamed he doesn't, he's like, oh, I'm eating with these Gentiles. These Jews are going to judge me. So he withdraws when, when these Jews show up. And Paul rebukes Peter. And Peter repents. Right? Peter repents. And so what you see here are a couple theological truths. The reality that when Peter ate with the Gentiles, it was to signify the Gentiles, you are accepted into the covenant people of God. That's why I'm having a meal with you. Okay? And when he withdraws, he's actually saying, I'm breaking fellowship. That's why they rebuke him. Why else would Paul rebuke him? Like, you could choose not to eat with people. That's not a sin. But it is because what his withdrawing from the meal symbolized. It symbolized a breaking of fellowship with the Gentiles. And so, once again, when you break bread with an unrepentant believer who professes to be a believer, you're saying, I accept you fully into the fellowship of Christianity and the church and everything I believe in. And when you refuse to break bread with them, it is because you say, hey, I can't. Because I would be deceiving you. And I would be dishonest to my Lord. So I know this is not popular in our day. Uh, and especially in American culture. Right? It's not popular. So now go to verses 12 to 13, right? Why? Why is Paul saying it's so harsh on believers? Well, verse 12 and 13, it says, For what have I, I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. 
right? So what's happening here is that this is the reason why Paul's not confronting the woman, the, the stepmother. She's already outside of the church. She's not a believer. Paul says, who am I to deal with the people in Satan's realm? God will judge the people in the outside world. I am judging those who belong to me, right? That's what Christ would say. And Paul is saying he's judging the people who belong to Christ. And so purge the evil person from the pure community. That's what he's saying. So he's talking about the professing believer. Now, this is very challenging. I think the greatest challenge for us is how much do we care about being a Christian? And that's really what it comes down to. Because if I care more about this world or my comfort or my sin, then I don't want people to confront me. I don't want my sins to come out. I don't want anybody to deal with me. But if I care about my relationship, my fellowship with God and Jesus, and if I want to be Christ-like, then I would want my brother and sister to tell me, hey, that wasn't right. Okay? So, so this can be anything from small things. I've said plenty of things from the pulpit where it was a little careless. And it wasn't something straight sinful, but someone has, told, someone has written me an email and uh, and, and, and I welcomed that. I said, well, thank you. You know, I wasn't as careful when I, when I made that statement. I might have misled some people. Others have told me, um, it, you know, when you, interpret the, it, you, when you made this interpretation, what about this? Others have told me, um, hey, you know what? You're moving too far ahead without bringing your team on board. Others, others have told me other things that, hey, when you were telling us all to, uh, uh, you know, open up our groups, you weren't as clear giving us an understanding. It seemed like you were angry at us. Um, I needed to hear all those things. Others have confronted me about other things. And God has been so gracious. And I welcome that from all you covenant members. I welcome that. Our pastors welcome that type of... And obviously, we're going to be objective and look at... You know, we're not going to listen to every complaint and, and you know, just, <laughs> you know, let, let uh, you know, anybody just dictate us. Sometimes there's unreasonable requests that we get and things that are uh, from the world. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I, I believe that as pastors, we need to model what, is, what you don't see in this world is leaders being open to accountability because we care about our holiness and our purity and, 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 and our uh, wanting to, to remember that we're always growing in Christ. And we hope that you would give us as pastors the keys to spiritually confront you because our motivation is not to uh, abuse our power or to hold anything over. In, in fact, I hate church discipline kids. I hate it. I hate dealing with it. It's like it's a headache. We don't find any joy in confronting your sin, but we have to because God calls us to. A passage like this is so strong. I want to give you the, the, the gospel hope. Turn to 2 Corinthians 2. I entitled this sermon, Removing Sinners, Restoring Saints. Where's the restoration happen? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Again, we want to be intellectually honest by following the pen of the Apostle Paul and seeing, Paul, what do you mean? Well, where else do you write about these things? Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it, it shows us in verses 5 to 11 that Paul tells them to restore somebody. Okay? And I want to be very clear that we have no, we have zero conclusive evidence that the event in 2 Corinthians is the same event or the same case as this sexually immoral brother, 
Okay, so we we have no evidence of that. But what we do understand is that 1 Corinthians was written first, 2 Corinthians second. Here's the encouraging thing. 2 Corinthians 2 tells us that the Corinthians listened to Paul. They listened to the Holy Spirit and they took church discipline seriously, too seriously, too seriously that the apostle had to write again to tell them, you guys need to chill out <laughs> and you guys need to be more gracious and loving. L let me read this to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. Look at what it says. It says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. So in 2 Corinthians, you know, Paul's defending himself a lot. There's people criticizing him personally. So that may have been a different case. That's why I'm saying it might be a different case. But here's verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you're being obedient in everything. And anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I wrote to you, uh, and you guys excommunicated someone, or you disciplined someone, uh, and I beg you that this person has repented. I beg you to, to show love to him, to restore him, to reaffirm your love for him. And I wrote you about church discipline to test your obedience. And you have passed that test. And so if you declare forgiveness, I declare forgiveness. That's what he's saying. He says, for what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything, right? Uh, anyone whom you forgive, I forgive. So corporately now, they were to, to say, okay, Paul wrote us so that we wouldn't be outwitted by Satan. And that sin wouldn't destroy our church. We dealt with the sinner. The sinner has been repented. We need to be gracious. And so this is a beautiful, I guess, closing mark where you begin with the apostle writing for them to do church discipline the church does practice church discipline and to the point now where paul's saying restore this repentant person in another case we assume and i believe they're going to do so so the big idea of this morning's message is christ purifies his church by removing sinners with the hope of restoring them as saints. Christ purifies his church by removing sinners with the hope of restoring them as saints. I will end by reading the lyrics to Speak, O Lord, and close us in prayer. The Lord speaks to us through his word. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you, to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us as a church and individuals in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love, in our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, to fulfill in us 
all your purposes for your glory. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail and can't be censored, truly. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by grace will stand on your promises. And by faith will walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Let's pray. Father, your word can never be censored because you speak through your Holy Spirit. You speak in a different realm, in the realm of redemption, for all those whom you've predestined for salvation, all those who we don't know who they are, but all those in the world who will one day respond to the call of your gospel. Father, we are your covenant people and we are your kingdom. Help us as a church to be a local expression here in Walnut, California, of your people. Purify us as individuals. Purify our church. Cause us to be a pure church so that our witness could be effective. Father, in a world where pastors and spiritual leaders continue to fall to sin, Father, I pray that you would protect us. Protect our pastors. We are humans. Protect us, Lord. I'm so thankful for our church. I pray, Lord, that our church would protect us by confronting us when they see any sin, any abuse of power. Father, I pray that you would protect our church by allowing our small group members to be honest with each other and to experience repentance and transformation. Father, help us even in a world that is where uh, rebuke and admonishment is not popular, that you would allow all of our groups and all of our groups and all of our members to experience this type of loving interaction and loving relationship where we experience redemptive discipline with one another. Make us more like you. Shape us, not with the rod of legalism, but with the grace that comes through your word, through the power of your spirit. Help us to be a church that's so loving in this way that the world would want to be a part of this church and the church in general. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.